0: That's BlueNile.com
1: Music's like a religion, isn't it? You know, you kind of become something you're so obsessed by. There's opportunities and it was exciting and, you know, it was a great thing to do but I definitely, uh, I look back and I wish I'd got a bit more sleep.
2: <laughs> this is Music Made Me Do It, a podcast from Loud and Quiet magazine. I'm Stuart Stubbs and each week I'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry. If you spent any time listening to British guitar music in the mid 2000s, there was one producer whose sound dominated the landscape. Paul Epworth produced debut albums for Block Party, The Rakes, The Future Heads and Maximo Park all within the space of a year and singles for pretty much everyone else. Parallel to that under the name Phones, he was remixing The Streets, Friendly Fires, Interpol and Muse and making bands danceable again. Without Paul Epworth, the Indie Disco as we came to love it would have sounded completely different. And yet, as impressive as those early days were, they were just the beginning. Since then, Paul has not only produced but co-written with Florence and the Machine, Paul McCartney, U2 and, most notably of all, Adele with whom he won an Oscar, a Grammy and a Golden Globe for Skyfall and four more Grammys for Rolling in the Deep and his work on the albums 21 and 25. Today, he also runs his own record label, Wolf Tone, and in 2013, he bought a recording studio in North London situated in an old church. But all of this really started in the mid 90s when, as a musician himself, he began to realise the value in not just learning how to make music, but how to record it. Today, with the boom of free recording software and entire albums being made on iPhones, it sounds pretty odd. But 25 years ago, few musicians knew how to record the music they were making. Paul Epworth basically decided to educate himself in that side of the music industry.
1: My first studio job was in 1994. And I'd been playing in bands for a few years before that. And I'd done a few recordings before that. And quickly figured out that if you made music, you needed to know how to record music. Mm. Uh, and I had a couple of experiences which were i probably might have spent my money better elsewhere <laughs> right <laughs> uh, of going to studios and uh also i probably realized i needed to find a job <laughs> sure. that i enjoyed and uh i could either just run the risk of of uh being a musician and and uh and then working it out down the line or i could actually do something that the two kind of things work together mm. um it just turned out i wasn't a particularly good singer <laughs> and i wasn't a particularly good guitarist <laughs> <laughs> um but when it came to sort of uh Getting in the studio and being able to sort of compensate for my inadequacies. Either my inadequacies are so great, I honed my talents as a someone who's able to polish a turd. Um, uh, (laughs) It turned into a proper job. So, so at what age did you start? Kind of, did you study music
2: production or? Yeah, I did. I did an
1: eight. I did an eight-week course, some of which I didn't show up to. Three days a week, a place called Islington Music Workshop, which is still there. And they I, they taught me the basics, but then obviously it's no use until you've actually gone and used it and, done, and actually done it on a daily basis. I grew up in Bishop Stortford, and in Harlow, which is a town nearby, there was an Essex County Council-funded venue, which had a record. You know, it was a, like in a live music venue, and had a, a, a recording studio that was about three meters by three meters square, that they used to use for video recordings of the live performances and when you know during the daytime and it, you know when the venue wasn't being used in the evenings you could go in and have you know go and use it as, as, a, as a recording studio and they were stupid enough to give me a job <laughs> and i i lasted there a couple of years and did lots of demos for bands and some singles and some albums for people you know 100 pound a day studio and it was you know it, it was great experience gradually i you know i sort of i learned a little bit about doing it but we're learning every day, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So, what age was that that you that you got that? So I was, journey? I was. How old was I? I think I was eighteen. Okay. You know, I was this young, green, very hungry sort of stoner. <laughs> so a lot, Not a lot of it went in, but yeah, I kind of, I basically, I learned the basics of recording and the basics of working with people, and you know, read read everything I could about production techniques, and eventually ended up. Place began to feel very small after a while. Hmm. And um, and so I thought I'd send some CVs out, uh, which didn't have very much on it. <laughs> and uh, and the first place that called me back was uh, was Air Studios, right up in Hampstead, which is George Martin Studio. And uh, I went down for an interview there and, and 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 got a job as a runner, which was great because it was you know it was one of the, you know the Air and Abbey Road are kind of the two biggest studios in London or in the country, but it meant I had to start from the, very much from the bottom again. And I thought I knew lots more than I did and and so i had to start making tea for people were you okay with that no i was yeah i was fine with it okay. I, I made i made a good cup of tea <laughs> um it just goes to show how far maybe looking after people does uh, does <laughs> it does get you somewhere yeah sure. <laughs> sure
2: so this is quite a bit before lomax because lomax you yeah. were like 28 yeah yeah i was like, much older yeah, yeah. so this, this does go back quite, so to fill in the gaps between that band and you were at the you're at your First studio for like a couple of years, till you so were like I twenty. At, or. So I was
1: about twenty, yeah. And then uh, and I um, and I and I had some friends who were playing in a band that were sort of fairly successful at the time, and uh, and they needed a you know towards the end of the two years they they needed a someone who could basically go out and roadie for them very cheaply. They said, oh, "Do you want to come out on the road?" and they were, doing, they, were do, they were doing a tour with the Human League, so they took me out for a, a pittance. <laughs> And uh, and I got I got I went out for a, sort of a, you know month with them on the road in a splitter van and saw the world and and, and saw saw the country and uh, and then went back to Harlow and it and I and I thought this this felt like a, you know a bit of a it felt like the walls were closing in a bit so like I said I sent my CV out and obviously got this job in London and uh, we sort of end up I ended up moving to London and basically working 130 hours a week. Mm. um for well below minimum wage at air studios and um and got i got some great experience and and worked with some megastars ended up passing michael jackson in the uh, an, an oasis on the way and and after a while there I realized that the of what I actually wanted to do more was was because was, a lot of the music there you know that they were doing at the time wasn't didn't feel like it was cutting edge mm. and I, and and there was a strongham studios at the time there were you know I think a lot of the the sort of contemporary electronic artists were making records there and so um, a friend of mine who worked there said oh do you want to you know come down for an interview and I went down and and got a job there and worked there again for a couple of years until I'd kind of graduated more or less graduated as an engineer so this is you know bearing in mind this is kind of you know four years of, of like literally doing nothing else apart from being in the studio yeah so my own music kind of went out the window not that there was much of my own music anyway but my my ambitions and then i ended up i went from there once i sort of essentially found my feet as an engineer i went to another studio called chiswick reach which is da- which is down in chiswick uh, which had this old lovely old valve desk and on the side as if i was freelancing as an engineer and on the side i was making music with a, with a, with another guy um under the name dead robots which i always thought was a great name um uh, which didn't really go anywhere probably because i couldn't sing very well uh <laughs> But the engineering stuff did, you know, sort of did keep me going, and I uh, and that, that lasted as long as the studio remained open, which probably says more about my engineering <laughs> skills than it did about studio <laughs> business practices. After that, I'd obviously, but you know, the, the venue I'd started out in with the, with the recording studio in, in in Harlow, I'd obviously got a bit of live experience as well, so I'd, I'd done the sort of like a bit of live sound along the way, and uh, someone who I'd worked with at Strongroom was setting up 93 feet east, and so she got me involved with that and uh, and i ended up i ended up being the sort of house sound engineer down there so i helped them set the venue up and and so and into front of house and then of course as the bands came through occasionally i'd do a good job <laughs> yeah <laughs> and someone someone in the sound engineer would drop out from their tour and say oh that guy was actually all right do you want to come and do a gig for us and so you know gradually i got you know i actually end up going out with Roy sop and the rapture and and then subsequently end up doing lcd sound systems first ever show right wow um and then toured with them for a while, and then I was out. I was, to, I was doing front of house for the Kills when uh, this young band from Newcastle, uh, from Sunderland, called the Futureheads, uh, happened to be supporting on a bunch of the dates, and um, we got along like a house on fire. And then this was around the same time as I was, is in its early embryonic days, and um, so while I was kind of doing sound for this lot, one of I well played one of the guys from Futurehead the record I made with with Lomax. And he loved it and um and i think he he persuaded the his management and, and the label to to let me let's have a crack together in the studio and the first couple of things that came out was two of the album tracks right so um so that was my that was my that was my break as a producer pretty much And there's an abridged version sure yeah yeah kind of uh I've, I've never you know a lot of people go into production by get, getting a job in the studio and just following the the, the, the career escalator up the, you know up to the point at which they want to get off um, and some people go into it by being a musician and making great records and then someone asked them to come in and help in the studio but i kind of had this weird journey which is a bit of a bit of a bit of all three Really,
2: mm. and you're working in those early studios and your music was taking like a back seat like your you know your original childhood yeah. dreams i guess of being yeah. in a band yourself were you f- kind of falling in love with production and engineering or was it
1: yeah i mean i came f- i came through an era where making music was production and you know it wasn't just like it wasn't like in the old days where it was you know that you know the artist would have a song and the band would learn it and then they'd go into the studio and someone would you know the, and the engineer would guide the sound with the, under the producer's oversight you know a lot of this you know it's very you know the age of the sort of you know, I guess it's kind of the, the DIY bedroom producer turned into the artist that we've known and loved for 20 years and I think the kind of the nature of the way the the, the sound and the and the and the, and the business of music has always reflected the technology that was available at the time, and I think you know I was decisions I made looking back like leaving Air was because I wanted to go and learn a bit more about programming and Pro Tools and that sort of things. And at the time Air Studios, I think they, the, the week I left, they bought their first, first Pro Tools rig, mm. so it really was very much like that. That was the old school and stronger and felt like the new new school at the time, and I think. Um, I felt like I'd be satisfied as long as I was making music one way or another but my agenda was always to try and be more the, the creative just be able to do to cover mo- cover as much of it as possible yeah so I could engineer and I could program and I could probably I could you know I could tune in and tone the guitar and because I'd had a few singing lessons along the way, I could help I could probably help a singer with a few exercises mm. and a, you know and a bit of guidance about bending your knees when you're going for a high note i could help them get good performance out of them and it kind of uh, some of that made all the difference and you
2: can make a good cup of tea yeah and a
1: good cup of tea but <laughs> that helps <laughs> yeah exactly yeah
2: so did you um so where then does when did you get into remixing Cause the first time i heard of you yeah was through your remixes With and friends. through that through that through phones yeah. and through the block party remix but where does that kind of slot in because essentially i mean it makes more sense now having heard you did Describe kind yeah. of how much happened before Lomax yeah. and being in a guitar band and being a singer in a guitar and guitar band, but then suddenly you're remixing a block party track, and that le- then essentially leads to you remixing almost every 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 naughty indie band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, well, the funny thing was, I, I knew that if I didn't do that, I'd forever be working with guitar bands as a guitar band producer. I needed to do that to try and make sure that my skill set was appeared to be diversified. The remixes how well, you know some of them I still I listen back and I think they sound pretty good and some of them maybe not so much. But um, and also it wasn't like I was cold calling because a lot of these things were things I'd worked on or things that were in a similar world to the stuff I was working on as a producer. And because the labels were, trusted, were clearly trusted you as a producer, they were more than happy to trust you as a remixer, especially when there wasn't so much writing on it. Mm. So I, I got, you know, there was definitely a few opportunities. And I guess the thing, the, the major thing looking back was, I was never a great, a great engineer, That's good, and I was never a great programmer, but I was okay. But I, I, I worked way harder than most of the people that, that were around me because I, was, I desperately knew I had to do something. And I think that kind of, that consistent application meant that I, you know, maybe I had more stamina as well. I just, I seemed to outlast a lot of the people who were my peers at the time. Maybe I'm just not that bright. <laughs> I should have given up way, way before. But um, I think the main thing was that I, you know, like I used to finish a session at 5am on, on, a, on a Sunday morning and realising that it was another session on the Monday morning that I was due in i I'd get the cab home from the studio, I'd go and pick up an MPC and a drum kit and a guitar and I, and I just literally struck it at the back of the cab and go straight back to the studio, set it all up, and I'd work there till maybe 4am the following morning straight through and this just strictly on coffee mm-hmm. I didn't have money to buy food it was coffee and cigarettes and I'd, and I'd finish it at like 3-4am the following morning go home and have four hours sleep and go back in the studio to start work on a Monday morning and I did that probably did that for like four or five years yeah you know solid application and the same thing even when I was working at 93 Feast they had a little studio attached to the place so they you know spent a little bit of money on it but not very much so they knew that you know they would get sessions in from time to time, and there were bands that would come through, and you know I'd hang out with them. And, you know, we'd, oh we've got this little studio. They come and check it out, do some recordings, do some demos, and and you know gradually I'd end up with those little bits of I'd be working a session five six days a week, and I'd have to duck out and do sound check, and then go back, and I'd work up till the band play, the bands were playing in the evenings. And I'd go and do the live shows, and at eleven o'clock I'd go back in and work straight through the night until. Wow. you know and, and it's just because I, lo- I, I I genuinely still love what I do mm. music's like a religion isn't it you know you kind of become something you're so obsessed by there's opportunities and it was exciting and you know it was a great thing to do but I definitely uh, I look back and I wish I got a bit more sleep <laughs> <laughs>
2: so it really is just pure graft really yeah, like, is, like, yeah. like for you at that time you then produced the Block Party debut record yeah. Future Heads Maximo Park The and the Rakes, those the, you know, those basically, four in basically, particular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's and as an untested yeah. producer, what do you kind of attribute that to? Was it just like you were friend? You'd become friends with the
1: bands, or, or was it? I guess they kind of go if you you know like the, you know Hounds of Love obviously was a reasonably big hit for a band like that. Block Party felt like uh, you know Franz had obviously had this massive record. There became a sound, and everyone wanted that sound for a minute, and that's what happens. Generally, happens with production. But I also knew that unless I, the, the the remix thing didn't just make me a guitar band producer, and it meant people thought of you with a bit more of a broader palette. You know, at the same time, I was I was making pretty terrible hip hop beats as well. You know, I, was, I just knew that I was excited by the music I was hearing, and I just wanted to reflect it in the work I was doing. You know, and I guess sort of being around the whole DFA thing, which was obviously the you know part of that genesis of of the kind of collision of dance music and guitars you know it felt like a really exciting time and i guess there's i was probably i was probably reacting to that and, and reflecting it it kind of you know it felt particularly i mean you know, i was living in brick lane and working at Night three feet east and shoreditch at the time felt like a really sort of raw and vital place and it was definitely wasn't as uh as populated by sort of the city boys and out of town it's as it is now, it's yeah, now yeah, and yeah. um it was real and it was an exciting place to be at the, at the right time sure
2: think back to that first session with future heads doing that first album it's not like it was the first band you'd ever like produced no. but did you feel a pressure of the fact that oh hang on this is actually
1: yeah, I mean, we've I, stepped up now yeah, it's mad else. i mean i got i was i could i literally couldn't believe i was getting paid for being in the studio with the band more than 100 pounds a day mm. i just i knew i just as soon as i had that first break i knew i knew i'd seize it with both hands and I did, and you know, and I kind of, and I took the, you know, I took, I took the tracks away, and I spent, recorded them analog, and then st- stuck them in my laptop, and went home, and I worked on them at home in, in the back bedroom of a, of a, of a flat in Chiswick, because I'd moved. By that time, I couldn't afford to live in the East End any longer. <laughs> all the city boys. Had turned exactly. Up. <laughs> I think the weekend I see. Yeah, the weekend I started the future heads I had to move to Chiswick because I couldn't pay the rent, <laughs> and, uh, and I um Started. I you know, worked on Worked on this little flat with you nothing, know, no, you know, nothing treated. A pair of NS10 speakers and on IKEA speaker stands. Did the same with Block Party because obviously I, I went to try something with Block Party and then we did Banquet. Went back to the flat in Chiswick and <laughs> worked <on laughs> I it worked. worked on that. And then I sort of said to the management, I said, I think there's another version of this. Let me leave, leave it with me. And, uh, and so I did that. Did that Banquet remix, which I always regret leaving at 150 BPM because I felt like it was way too fast. <laughs> Well, it was. Yeah, it's a high-energy tune.
2: Through 2004 and 2005, Paul refused to slow down, producing all day, remixing all night, and blowing off steam through the weekend. But just as he'd realised that musicians needed to learn how to record music themselves, he knew that the trend of indie dance music would soon be over. Foreseeing the end, he thought about what to do next and decided he should start writing music with
1: other artists. It just wasn't quite as simple as that. I knew that was a you know a, a moment which probably wasn't going to last and it didn't and I knew I had to sort of take stock a bit at some point and say I knew I had it in me to be a to want to be a writer as well and, and to you know write to write pop music or to be more involved in the kind of in the in the creation and conception of songs rather than just being the person who recorded it and put the finishing touches on it um and i thought having you know i you know came all my chest puffed out and all gassed and thought i could just sort of drop into the writing thing off the back of making a bunch of indie records and it clearly wasn't the point and i had to you know, i would learned a sort of hard and fast lesson about getting carried away with the with the notion of being cool for a minute was that because
2: <laughs> essentially that the trend of like indie like guitar bands that kind of were making dance music yeah just just because that trend Falls away and it's such a fickle business Well, it,
1: it sort of changed it, you know it changed and it bit you know i kind of I, I you know i knew the point at which i probably could have single-handedly owned that whole thing you know from through to the Claxons, through you know the, and a few of the other bands that happened around it i sort of went i went no i stopped and i ended up working with plan b for example and so that i that was the, the classic one of my left turns i usually do and do something that the, the, last thing, the last thing people expect. And probably sometimes I might have been a bit of a dick about it. But I think I, I, I definitely, I know that, you know, for instance, doing Plan B, obviously, maybe the, first, the stuff we did in the first record, I'm still very proud of. But then a couple of years later, we had an opportunity to do it again. And we did it in a slightly different way. And it, it did a whole, you know, it, it went somewhere else. Mm. One thing I've always tried to do is because I knew that if I got stuck in one genre, I'd get bored. So I've always tried to diversify or do something that's the kind of the antithesis of, you know, for example, you know, off, off the back of the Dell when the first things I did was a pop group record. <laughs> you know, the t- so that's, you know, again, that's one of the, the kind of one of my left turns that I've always tried to do just to finally, firstly, to keep my own process fresh, my own creative process, but also just to stop me, to stop me getting bored. Mm. And also I think that by, by doing that, you. You don't fall into that will do inverted in inverted commas habits that you know the sort of justifiable just just satisfactory kind of habits that you can as a producer where you do the same thing for every record and they become your cliches and I know that I kind of I I fucking hate myself when I do end up doing you know I, I see I see myself doing it in sessions and I kind of go oh. and sometimes people go that's what we want <laughs> and sometimes they go no no we don't want that it's fine and, but at least I'm I'm able to go look this might. You know, you put it out there and say, like, do you want the cliche or do you want something that's a bit more inspired? And I was always trying to challenge myself on that level. You know, I've always tried to satisfy my my own musical interest as well. Sure. As much as, as, much as do you try and do something that's fresh and what's right individually for the artist rather than just kind of repeating the, the, a formula. Mm. And I guess, you know, I guess the root of that was probably I tried to deliberately set out not to have a sound. And I don't know if I've quite achieved that because there are things that you could probably say are consistencies mm. but um i did i definitely didn't want to be a you know the kind of uh, the stock aching and waterman of indy sure um <laughs> so <laughs> what a thought yeah i know i know, showing a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs>
0: to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: <laughs> so where did you so like you, you mentioned that you because now you are a co-writer and you do write yeah with, you do write with artists a lot but you were saying that that did you, you first tried that and it
1: didn't happen did you? yeah well it's just that i you know i, I thought that, that having no previous track record of writing but all the Cool stuff I'd done that was big in the Guardian was going to get was going to see me along the way, and it didn't. And and so I, you know, I had a couple of there were a couple of random ones like I got asked to do something for the Sugar Babes. It was actually a good tune, but it wasn't it wasn't a great song, um, so it didn't work out. And then I did, and then I and then my manager at the time said, "Look, what you need to do is you need to go and find an artist who's not signed, and someone that you can just get on a vibe with, and just." Do loads of stuff like that where you're kind of and eventually one of those things will be it will happen Mm. and um so the first first thing we found was a girl called kate nash and uh so we end up in the back bedroom of my house in queens park by now and uh and you moved a lot (laughs) lot. yeah i wasn't earning that much money and uh and um we did a track called foundations which obviously turned it suddenly she got assigned and suddenly turned into quite a big quite a big record and then the album went to number one and the single went to number two and and i was and suddenly i I'd sort of essentially put my sort of put my flag in the sand as a as a writer hmm. even though i tried to do something that was based on a suicide song <laughs> you know that <laughs> yeah <laughs> another it worth left turn uh but yeah so that was that obviously meant that i you know i was able to get a small publishing deal and then the publisher was like well how about you do this and try this and you know, and I, you know, I did a few other things like I did something with Sam, did a couple of changes with Sam Sparrow, and and I sort of got to learn some of the trick, you know, the tricks and you know, songwriting techniques that I probably hadn't learned along the way because mm-hmm. I hadn't, I'd been focused on studio rather than being a musician, and I had a bit of a crash course in being a musician again.
3: Sure.
1: And then did a, I did a lot of, sort of co-writes with people and top line writers, and none of it really clicked. And then somewhere along the way. I got a phone call to see if I wanted to work with Jack Peniante, who who'd obviously had big, sort of some big success around the same time as Kate with with his first album, as you know if, you know did, did very well commercially, but he d- he felt like he'd been critically hadn't had received the critical praise he th- he, he he thought he might, yeah. and he and so he was determined to do something he he felt like was represented his musical tastes and the and that of his peers. Um, so we went to the studio together and started sort of jamming, you know, talk, listen to music together. And we end up doing sort of talking about Fela Kuti and um, Agent Orange and all these kind of like weird sort of mutant Afrobeat records. And we thought, well, let's do something like that. And in about five hours, we basically wrote, recorded, and produced this track called Tonight's Today. Which still today I think was just it just I knew I just knew going to the studio that day we'd do something that had some magic and I and I still don't know how we did it that fast but it just had the he put one vocal down there was one take we were, how about this did it and I was like that's it that's done we did load of backing vocals the two of us on the same microphone together like the Beatles because we were trying we did we wanted to not be able to tune it or edit it or anything mm-hmm. and it while the while the track didn't really perform commercially it felt like it. You know that and the record we did together really touched people and it feels like today people so occasionally people go i fucking love that album you did yeah it's really special and we did it in this tiny little room i had it was like a garden shed up at next to east coast studios and then obviously Jacks, jack was mate with florence and then jack was made for the dell yeah <laughs> and dell actually came in and did some backing vocals on the record right okay they so, you know jack's the, a good guy to yeah, know yeah, yeah well, jack, <laughs> jack's like a he's like a whirlwind He, he he's so he's such a, an amazing amazingly clever and enthusiastic guy he draws you in and he's a, he's a kind he's a kindest most lovable soul there's something about the sound of that record and the vibe of it and it just kind of there's definitely a bit of that in some of the florence stuff and there's a bit of that in rolling in the deep and you know and, and the other stuff we did you know did on, that, on, on 21 and you know i look back at that and that was kind of it felt like a bit of a turning point and especially in terms of he was part of that era for XL Records, which was uh, felt like a new a new start for them, and mm. I was for, you know fortunate enough to be around that as it was happening. Friendly Fires as well, sure, yeah. which obviously I was kind of there was a bit of a you know as much a little bit of co-writing on that, but most of it was just helping them finish off these amazing ideas because Ed's, Ed's a producer in his own right um, and a very very gifted one as well. But it felt like there was this really natural little kind of, you know, much in the same way as it had happened a few years before. I had this like little second, sort of second wind, if you like. Yeah. And it was very exciting. And then, of course, the Adele stuff just went ballistic. Just went insane.
2: Yeah. Kind of the climax of this, I guess, is rolling in the deep, winning all the yeah. Grammys yeah. and. And then that leads to Sky 4 and you win in an Oscar and
1: like... Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it's, still, it's still very surreal. It's kind of crazy, right? It's completely, um, yeah. you know... It's it was, a, but it, was, it wasn't on my bucket list. Was it not? No, no. And it, I mean, it wasn't... I, you know, I never thought that was possible. You know, when I was a kid, I probably sort of sat down and wrote, what you know, where I wanted to be in 20 years... You know, where I wanted to have, saw myself in 20 years' time. I might have had a studio where I could write and record and produce music, you know, the music I wanted to make. I guess... so i'm sat in this this beautiful building and it's it's probably it's probably way more than i should have had (laughs) yeah
2: having achieved what you've achieved and and once you get those huge accolades that you never dreamt of one presumes it kind of perpetuates things and now It doesn't sound like you've ever had to cold call to get production jobs anyway, but at the same time now, people kind of... My phone's not ringing now. (laughs) 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 But, you know, like, does it feel like life has just... as a producer has just become just easier generally? Like, you can pick and choose what you do, you can
1: do it here in your own place. I feel like I've always been very... I feel like I've been very fortunate to be able to pick and choose for the most part. I really love and enjoy all the music I work on. But, you know, I kind of... I still... I still listen to stuff which is. Um, I mostly just listen to stuff which is way less mainstream than the music I work on, and my my tastes still are the more abstract and underground. And and I guess that one of the things I've I've also realised is that when you've got a place like this, that you need to make you need to make pay for itself. It, sometimes it, it in terms of the budgets, it might limit the choice of what you do, mm. or you have to take the hit to do it. Sure. And sometimes it's sometimes it's worth doing, and sometimes it's you know that just it just means that. You, you know i was able to you know i I feel very fortunate to have been able to do a thurston Moore record here Mm. which is like a absolute dream come true production dates very fast songs don't date at all i'm very aware of the the more production you do the more you have to spend your time trying to stay on the curve or just behind it (laughs) um and, and try not to get stuck in old habits yeah you know as a producer you're competing against young kids who who don't have the other the other challenges within their life like like a family or the mm-hmm. stresses of running an old building like this or kids that can stay up all night and it, it, do what you used to it. do. yeah exactly and that's the you know and that's the that in itself is a challenge because again there's a question mark as a producer of like how do you how do you place your strengths you know is it to use your experience to guide people who are, who are those younger guys and you sort of and you, and you become like a Rick Rubin where you you're guiding a process with the experience and the kind of and the and the knowledge you have the thing is I, I'm so I get so emotionally involved in the music I work on I'm still here to two in the morning every night I try and go home and do dinner with the kids sometimes and most of the time I don't I don't get out I'm still here still doing the, still doing the crazy hours and sometimes the artists come in the morning and they just they could take one look at you and they know you're burnt out and i'll do it again the next night and it's just you know why if you're enjoying it and you love it you have to you have to follow it don't you yeah do you
2: consider yourself a producer what what do you put on that you know <laughs> on, my, on my business card what's on your business i've never card? had a business card <laughs> I've never ever had one <laughs> there's something uh, very naff about yeah, having a business know, card isn't
1: there but uh, what would you have on it Lols. <laughs> lols yeah uh yeah maybe not most of the time uh no <laughs> to laugh at uh no i, th- I think i mean I, th- I think i'm a jack of all master of none but i think the idea of, of of record production as an art form in terms of like you know understanding how to get the best sounds out of acoustic instruments and bringing the best sounds out of synths or you know you, Using compression creatively, or you know, like I mean, there's 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 lots of people who are able to specialize, who specialize much more than I do. But I'm able to have a very very broad. I'm able to have a little bit of lots of lots of different skill sets. Mm. So it means I've been able to be adaptable. I think kind of modern workflows need you to be adaptable. Like what each artist needs, the role they are they need for me to fulfil is so very different every time you work with somebody. Hmm. The speed at which they want to work is different. the kind, you know sometimes they sometimes they want me to sit there and go great not great. sometimes I need to actually write a song, sometimes I need to give help with songwriting, but I'm not a credited songwriter hmm. sometimes it's just getting it's just ringing the best performance vocal performance out of somebody. sometimes it's literally walking in and going that piece of music you think is the most the weirdest, most wonderful you know the weirdest thing that you just kind of that was a bit of fun that should be the first single. And that might be all you need to do, yeah. And and, and then being the sort of the gatekeeper of them not, them not pulling it apart to try and make it into more of a single. Yeah. Um, sometimes they might just want your name on it, mm. and you have to go cool and just and try and be zen enough to kind of know that you're creating a space for them to to make the music that they want, and you and you and you're having fun with them, hanging out with them. Yeah. Sometimes it's sitting on Ableton for twelve hours trying to put a ambient soundtrack together so that they. I don't know. I mean, I'm just. These are the This might be the, how different each of my roles have been on records I've made, maybe over the last year. Is it as much? Because
2: I suppose the question of like what makes a great record producer is—is is it as much about great pe- artist? <laughs> is it great artist? Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Is it also kind of the people management side of it and working Not massively? With new people? Yeah, yeah, massively. Because in a way, I imagine. There's a certain amount where anyone could learn the th- yeah. the thing to m- to press record and yeah. know
1: the levels and all of that kind of stuff, but to- if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, as I'm renowned for, <laughs> you know, hopefully the balance of me saying the right thing at the right time is probably out probably outweighs the number of times I put my foot in it. <laughs> right, okay, uh, you know, I genuinely believe that if you play to people's confidence but not to their ego. You create a very special environment where they don't feel they need to inflate their own ego to, to prove to themselves they're good. They mm. just need to know that they trust they're good and, they're, and, they're, and their quality emerges. For you, is it harder to do with the
2: bigger stars that you know work with the bigger names? Is it hard to not play to the ego of I a Paul know. McCartney? T- or a I
1: don't know. I'm, I'm not you know you kind of just have to you know you just put it out of your head and, and just try and pretend you're forming a new re- you know you're just genuinely forming a new relationship with someone who you've never really met before and pretend your back in pretend, there yeah, with yeah, yeah, the exactly, future heads yeah, the yeah you know like I mean I remember a conversation with Paul McCartney saying how I felt like when I first saw the future heads and all forward and singing I said I imagined it was probably like when people saw the Beatles playing in the Reaper Barn, you know that, that sort of like active, uptight energy And mm. but I always wanted to talk with him more about the solo records than, the Beatles stuff. than I, did, I did Beatles yeah. stuff even though I love the Beatles but I just I wanted to hear the stories that he didn't really tell other people yeah yeah sure did he tell <laughs> he's, you them? he's got some great stories oh, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes there's situations like that where you kind of you feel like you've just got to go in with something interesting you know an idea that's interesting and stimulating enough for you to get started on and then we're going with, with McCartney it's i like, oh it's a great idea why don't we do a track that's based on a shepherd scale like the idea like a musical barber's pole and uh he's like oh, that's, a, that's a great idea you know that's kind of, anyway so i've got in the car to, maybe we'll come back to that later so i've got in the car to drive home i'm stuck on mccartney too, and this track called coming up which is really which is he, he sort of recorded and put out three years after i was born and just clearly based on a shepherd's scale <laughs> I, i'd never noticed it before i felt like an absolute idiot <laughs> he's probably used to yeah. that well exactly he'd obviously done it so. yeah so uh but he didn't say anything which is uh, a <laughs> what a gentleman <laughs> yeah a gentleman yeah so
2: now like if if you were to be doing this now if you were like 18 again now to anyone listening to this for example who wants to become a producer what what it's such a different world now and like the music industry is so different Mm. everything about it's different would it still be the same kind of steps that you that you went through in terms of six week course
1: or going get a small Mm. studio go on tour with a band i think uh, i think just any learning you can do any structured learning or like a course is is a great way of have a really crash course and in insight but the experience you need is just doing it you know advice to the young modern producers today would be to do your thing on Ableton try and recreate the songs that you hear try and find your own voice with it and read as much as you can about all the different techniques and fa- you know facets of you know of using old samplers or of using microphone techniques or think reading as much as you can to or listen you know i'm listening to podcasts i think you know i'll gain great insight of i listen to plenty of these things to try and find new perspectives on how to work i think you do have to be adaptable but i think like i think now it's so easy to you know you can make music you put it up on soundcloud there's kids i work with who put their music on soundcloud and we, you know as while we're developing they developing the results for their records and suddenly they get a call from people i i want to work with yeah. <laughs> my phone's not ringing <laughs> so you know the world is very different I mean I think if I hadn't learned to program and 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 have those different skill sets I wouldn't have made it as a producer via the engineer route but I had a little bit of everything kids today are the result of what's essentially the, the tech the, the technology of music has been democratized your garage band on an iPhone do you look at someone like Steve Lacey yeah who makes his amazing sounding records he's, a, he's an incredibly gifted musician you know he goes and he's got iRig on his iPhone He's rolling in studio with kendrick i'm sitting here with all with this with this big studio here and i think what the fuck am i doing <laughs> but there's always that in your head of like of, maybe i should go and make a four track ep on the on garage band on the iphone and see where i'll we'll get to yeah just to challenge my own perceptions of of, of of creative process and expectation and of course i end up back in here with <laughs> with, with, with an Neve console <laughs> and a, but you know habits are hard to break creatively and sometimes you have to help an artist see where they're falling into their comfort zone and that's all part of like having an overview kind of like a an objective analytical viewpoint of all everybody's creative process within the room and trying to find a way to gel it all together sure be it you're the engineer you work with how you know you have to try and make sure they're kind of they feel good and confident and comfortable about what they do to get the best performance and the best recordings (laughs) and it's very easy to get caught up in your own (laughs) paranoia <laughs> about making sure you don't fall into your own, cr- own, own cliches sure can you remember where you were when you heard about the skyfall nomination
2: from the for the oscars when yeah, did you
1: when you get yeah the i was copy? i was on holiday were you i was on, ho- I was on holiday and I uh, i'd had a moment when we played it to my publisher in america played it on the, on the, off, the off the phone and she said straight out she goes you're gonna get the oscar for this and i was like you fucking joke? no way um and then we got the nomination I had no idea it was going to happen. I, in fact, I thought it, when the performance, I felt like the performance she, when she when she played didn't go down anywhere near as well as some of the other because they, they did all because all the nominated songs perform at the, sure, the yeah, yeah in the room yeah and maybe it was just me being paranoid but I thought she I thought Adele performed immaculately and and it was the whole thing was just such an astonishing moment and it just I don't it, it was hard to f- know whether it went down as well in the room as some of the other more Hollywood sure yeah yeah style things but. I don't know whether it was just that she she's such a spellbinding performer. Yeah, and the end of it is kind of quite. There's this ghostly kind of atmosphere to it, and I think maybe it just took people's breath away. I don't know, but thankfully, I, uh, I just in case I'd, I'd memorize. I'd memorize a few people's names who uh, okay. I need to thank. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you were
2: on holiday and got the nomination, did you
1: just go nuts just at the nomination alone? No, I just. I, couldn't no, believe it no, it's just it's just a weird i just tried to kind of go whatever <laughs> <laughs> oscar what? yeah no no it's just the more you just kind of shrug at that stuff and think it's funny the, the less you build up on it yeah the less disappointed
2: um, you could potentially be
1: like yeah on. very weird music
2: made me do it is produced by dream team and loud and quiet and edited by emma snook more information please visit loudonquiet.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to receive all future episodes